When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, founder of Lola Media. Welcome to another show this week. Paul, got some good stuff to talk about. This week we're talking about, well, two things, but we're talking about Dave Chappelle and the recent attack against him. And we're talking about Justin Lin, director of Fast 10 or Fast X. Former director. Leaving the project and all the drama that comes with that. But first up, man, I went to go see Doctor Strange 2 on Saturday like a lot of people did, given that box office numbers were decent. $190 million, which is, you know, pretty damn good. Uh, Spider-Man did 260. Yeah. But, like, I would say that's that's a pretty good number. Spider-Man, I mean, is, like, the biggest franchise of them all. So yeah. you can't really compare it to Spider-Man. But I think it more than doubled, or maybe it doubled Doctor Strange 1. And, you know, we're still coming out of the pandemic. So I think that's they've got to be thrilled with that number. Yeah, I mean, I went and watched it on a Saturday. Packed theater. I was in the Williamsburg Cinema, which I hadn't watched, like, a big movie like that in my neighborhood very rowdy, people loud, people screaming at the screen, clapping. I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I think one of the things I get annoyed with is that they put too much in the trailers these days. And I get it because they're trying to get people to go to the movies, but you're kind of, maybe you don't get as much surprise as you want. Uh, no spoilers here, but I thought it was a blast. I think what's interesting about the movie is that you have to watch WandaVision, and you have to watch some of the things within What If, which is on Disney+. Plus. Whether you watch it before, you're definitely going to want to watch it after because maybe you're a bit confused, but the way they've designed it is actually pretty brilliant. Yeah. The interconnected nature is something that, you know, is it's definitely a Marvel trait. And I think in the past, maybe a couple years ago, you could understand things even on a standalone basis like maybe you wouldn't get all the easter eggs and maybe you wouldn't get all the continuity but you wouldn't be like what the hell's going on and i think now we're getting past the point where you know you can't just for example like my wife couldn't just go watch doctor strange 2 and really know what's going on because she's you know she's been a bit out of the loop since like infinity war yeah it's like there i was listening to a podcast recently and they're saying it's not like it pushes a plot forward but what it does it gives you context for a movie so i don't know you have to watch a lot of it just to understand like where the storyline is going but it's still a fun movie like i went with my buddy i told him watch wandavision he watched it all in one night and then he watched the youtube catch-ups of what if and then you're prepared for the movie and obviously some things that we talked about last week, some of the IP crossover, again, won't ruin it for anyone, but there is some cool stuff that's in the mix, I think, in the next few years now of the MCU. You know, and that next topic, obviously, Met Gala was last week. 
Vash, I, I don't know. If, I think our invites got lost in the mail. I was a little surprised that maybe they don't, they don't have the Lola Media address yet. But no, I, had my know, I, was right. I wasn't I quite was sure waiting. what the theme was. <laughs> gilded, gilded glamour. That I think part of the issue is that no one seemed to understand what that meant. So only like half the people got it right, and the other half were doing their own thing. I mean, it's confusing. It's confusing, but it you know, 2023. They should definitely get the little media address correct. You know, the Met Gala. It's so funny. I it was the first time I actually I properly watched. I was watching with my sister, who's you know been into fashion for a long time, and I didn't actually realize a lot of the reasons for the Met Gala. You know, Anna Winter like basically saying this is what the season's going to look like. This is fashion, but it's also like has such a big business component to it, given like. Everyone is designing stuff off this inspiration. But I did think it was funny. The funniest part I was watching was that it was definitely catering to a much younger TikTok scene. And a lot of the criticism from you know older folks was that people don't seem to understand how this works. You're basically supposed to follow what the theme is, not do your own thing and talk about who the designers are. So funny enough, Met Gala will be there next year, hopefully, uh, or we'll at least be watching it from afar. Or, or we'll go to the after party. It's usually at Cipriani. Maybe we can do that instead. Yeah, listen, I mean, Timothy Chalamet wasn't there. Dua Lipa wasn't there. So there are some omissions. So I don't feel as bad. <laughs> Just yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. <laughs> don't feel so, as bad. Yeah, if Timothy Chalamet didn't get invited. I'm sure he got invited. He probably just, yeah. Why would they not invite? He's like the biggest star. That's true. So, yeah, man. Dave Chappelle. Netflix is a joke. Live show. Hollywood Bowl. Damn, Mesh. Tell us what happened. Okay, so this was pretty nuts. Obviously, Dave Chappelle's on stage. He gets attacked. Someone comes up on stage and tries to tackle him. They kind of slip. He gets shrugged off. Everyone starts chasing this dude and been behind the scenes. You know, the person who attacked him, he got roughed up for attacking Dave Chappelle on stage, which for one, totally unacceptable. You shouldn't you shouldn't do that at a live show that that's not okay. Or a tape show. I mean, don't come on Better Call Paul and try to attack either one of us. (laughs) I mean, don't attack people, period. Don't. Yeah. Don't like I think that's it. Don't. Don't attack people. Like, what are you doing? Like, you can't yeah. just assault somebody and then expect nothing to happen. This is not legal advice, but I'm telling you, it's probably a better idea if you don't attack people in any circumstance. And this is the thing. It was a star-studded show. Dave Chappelle had his whole crew there. Chris Rock was there. Jamie Foxx was there. I mean, the guy who attacked him did get roughed up pretty badly. You know, suffered a broken arm, some facial injuries. But, like, you know, I think especially after everything that's happened, I think we've all been waiting. Like, when is someone going to come on stage and attack someone? And I think I think in the response, they sent out a good message. The other crazy I mean, thing is Will that, Smith? Well, yeah. Oh, the, so did. post the Will Smith thing. <laughs> Olivia Wilde. Oh. Oh, Olivia Wilde. Whichever it might be. Whoever okay, yeah, is yeah, yeah you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. I mean, it's been a slippery slope. Like, you know, it's like it happens at the Oscars. And then last week, Olivia Wilde got served by a process server in the middle of a presentation for her movie at an industry convention to what, CinemaCon. And you're like, okay, this is weird. And is someone going to straight up attack a entertainer in the middle of a show? And here it is. It happened. Crazy. And your thing with the CinemaCon thing is that it's not necessarily, like, you could serve papers live on stage. I don't know why you'd choose to do that, but it was more like, how did this person get on stage? Well, so yeah, there's two things, right? And, and the service of process side of things, I think we can, we don't want to lose viewers because it is somewhat dry legal topic and it depends on a lot of factors. We could do a deep dive if there's a lot of interest in that as far as, you know, it depends on the type of case, the state you're in. But basically, in order to 
start a lawsuit, start the clock ticking on all the deadlines, you have to file a complaint with the court, but then that complaint needs to get to the defendant. Or, and the and so like that's how the deadlines start working. And then and so long story short, the best way to serve someone is in person. So you kind of have to know where they are so that you can do that. So if you know where they live or you know where they work, you can pretty much go there a couple of days and see, you know, either get to their house or get to where they live. But if someone's a celebrity, they might be harder to track down. You're like, okay, I know Olivia Wilde's going to be at this presentation from whatever time on this day. I'll serve her there. I mean, it's definitely not common way to do it, but I guess it technically meets the right. legal requirements. And yeah, the security concern is the bigger concern right. as far as how did someone get through security? It's usually, I think, very highly vetted list of attendees. They're all sort of industry insiders. So how did someone get in? And then how are they able to approach the stage? Same, you know, Hollywood ball, anyone can buy a ticket and go to the show. But, you know, he also had like a gun that had a like a knife that or like it had a knife blade on it. And he was able to get like onto stage. It was a replica gun. Yeah. The whole thing is like going to your point, like getting on stage. You can't do that one. But two, this guy had a fake gun with a knife blade. And because he didn't use it, they're saying that it's not a felony. Right. So specifically, the L.A. County D.A., after reviewing slow-mo footage of the attack, said that there wasn't enough there for them to charge a felony. They don't prosecute misdemeanors. So they kicked it to the L.A. City attorney who I guess they're they're going for maybe assault, battery. I think it's also a crime to attack a performer in the middle of a concert. So none of these, I don't think, are felonies. And I think I'll, you know, there's Joe Rogan, among others, have, have sort of expressed outrage at the fact that you could just straight up attack someone with a knife on right. stage and it not right. be a felony because that's the kind yeah. of thing we definitely want to deter. Yeah. And, you know, the criminal law logic behind that is, yes, we want to deter these sorts of things. But if there isn't a serious injury or potentially deadly attack with deadly force or a deadly weapon, then it doesn't qualify as something that would rise to the level of a felony. And so in this case... What they said is in the slow mo footage, the gun with the knife blade like remained in his pocket or whatever. He wasn't in his hand. He didn't try to use it, and he kind of bounced off Chappelle. So he hit him, yeah. but he didn't really like injure him. That being said, that is a little bit of like the benefit of hindsight. Like just because he might be like a little bit of a buffoon or something, doesn't mean that this is the kind of conduct we want to not encourage, but we want to take a, a strong stance against this because performers, whoever. They're not expecting to be attacked in that setting. We have to kind of discourage that because what if he did shoot him, right? Like that would have been, well, that would have been a felony, I guess. First of all, the fact that he was allowed in there with that in the first place, one. Two, I, I agree with this whole thing. It's like he has to be punished. We have to set an example. No one should be attacking anyone on stage, let alone in general. If you assault someone, you assault someone. This was assault on a stage where... This should not be happening. I was reading all the comments and stuff, and I think people were siding with Chappelle, like the guy got roughed up. I did read an article where Chappelle said that he actually talked to the guy, and he talked about his grandmother being removed from her neighborhood due to gentrification, and he said he was trying to bring attention to that, which, you know, I, I don't, I mean, maybe, but like, I don't know if that was the right way to do it. Pretty kind of gone on stage and grabbed a mic. This honestly, I, I know I'm dating myself. This had like a strangely Billy Madison vibe. I don't know if like you remember <laughs> when Steve Buscemi like comes in after the speech and like shoots. I mean, obviously we don't want to glorify anything like that, but it just Isaiah Lee claims he's a rapper. He has a song, I think, on Spotify named Dave Chappelle. So 
I mean, it's just a very oh, wow. strange. I, I think he's like mentally, clearly mentally challenged. But the, I don't know whether insanity is a defense. But I think the issue here is: is this a felony? Did LA County go easy on him? You know, we don't want to have any copycats. And it seems like there's already been three instances in the entertainment industry where this has happened, and we're only in May, so it's like kind of crazy. I know. Well, hopefully, I mean, I, I don't want to see any more of this. It, it's just going to suck, and especially people wanting to get attention. But look, if you go on Dave Chappelle's show, he's not messing around. Oh, if you attack him, yeah. <laughs> Don't mess with Jamie Foxx either, apparently. You know? Yeah, no, I know. He, they, it was all fun. Like, they made some good, funny lines after that. Jamie Foxx was on Instagram imitating Dave Chappelle during the whole incident, which was hilarious and went viral. And then Chris Rock obviously had that line at the end of it that was uh, about, you know, the Will Smith reference that everyone was like, finally, he was able to get his uh, moment there. So... We'll keep an eye on that stuff, but let's take a break and then let's get back to our main topic. Okay, Paul, here we go. I know you've been wanting to talk about this for the last couple of weeks. It is an important topic to talk about because it's, I mean, one, how big the franchise is, but also like how much this happens in Hollywood. Justin Lin, producer of the Fast franchise, directing Fast X or Fast 10 has left the project. Tell us why this is such a big deal. I mean, just for reference, the Fast franchise is a $5.6 billion franchise, or that's how much it's made up to this. I didn't realize how big it was, but clearly there's a oh, lot yeah. of money riding yeah, it's on huge. this right now. I didn't know it was that big. It's a huge franchise. It's one of the top maybe five or six franchises. It's like yeah. outside of Marvel, and it might even be as big as DC. I mean, the movies are huge. They're in their 10th one, which tells you. And plus, I think, you know, Hobbs and Shaw and, and whatever spinoffs. They have a ton of stars. So Justin Lin, for those that don't know, he's AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander. It, it is AAPI Heritage Month. So I want to celebrate that. He's directed, I believe, Tokyo Drift, Fast 4, Fast 5, Fast 6, Fast 9, and was about to do Fast 10. And so that, I mean, it's a huge franchise. He's Asian American. So that in and of itself is something I think worth celebrating. And then on top of that, he's also written a couple of them. And I think he actually wrote the script for Fast X. And two days into shooting, and Fast X, as you know, I mean, it's a $300 million picture. I think it's the... I don't think they'll ever end the franchise. So I don't think they're saying this <laughs> yeah. is the final installment. And all the new celebrities that have joined, like Jason Momoa, we've got Brie Larson, like all these bigger celebrities right. have joined the joined the project as well. Yeah, they're all sort of in the Vin Diesel universe now. And you have, I think Charlize Theron is back. Tyrese is back. It's $300 million picture. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure. The release date is May 23rd, 23. And I think there's probably no way they're going to miss that. The implications of missing a release date for the film that big are just incredible because, you know, release dates are for tentpole pictures are fought over. So they're not going to miss the date. And so to have a director, I was looking back doing some research. There's some precedent for directors being replaced either right before production or even at the very beginning of production. I know that happened when I was at Marvel. It happened on Ant-Man. Edgar Wright was replaced by Peyton Reed. Brian Singer was replaced on Bohemian Rhapsody. Zack Snyder was replaced on Justice League. So it does happen. I think it also happened in Star Wars and some Pixar films. But it's very rare when you think about how many movies are made and certainly how many movies with this size of budget are made. Usually when that's happening, it's the studios making a change saying, well, we don't want this person to direct because it's not working out either creatively for script reasons or budget reasons or 
they're not keeping to schedule. But it's a very sort of extreme thing. And you would normally, these issues with the director would be worked out well ahead of pre-production, right? So that you don't have to make a massive change in the middle or right before you start shooting. Right, right. And so, you know, contractually, we can get into what would be in a director's agreement as far as the ability to terminate, what a studio would have as far as termination at will, termination if they fail to bring in the script or if the budget doesn't match the sort of approved threshold or they can't get things done on schedule. But in this case, he wasn't fired, right? So this was him deciding to leave. So it's not, it's less of a contractual, you know, what is the studio's right here? It's more how bad was it, must it have been for him to say, okay, like I am walking away from this $20 million or whatever, 10 to $20 million deal for a movie that I've, already done like five installments of this franchise and I wrote the script. So, I mean, it's a pretty significant occurrence in my view Uh, and rare. And the one thing about Justin Lin, look, he is responsible for revitalizing this franchise. When Fast Five came out, it was like, oh my God, this is a blockbuster movie. It was like that summer blockbuster movie. And then it was repeated, repeated, repeated. Because I remember like I watched all the Fast and Furious I was in high school when the first one came out. And obviously, back then, barely had a budget, cult classic. He ends up doing, right. you know, Tokyo Drift, which is like, oh, so a sleeper. And then Fast Five comes out, and it's like, whoa, these guys aren't just guys racing cars. They're like action stars. Right. That was the turning point when it went from car racing movie <laughs> franchise yeah. to like a, just a major action movie franchise. And I think they had the rock yeah. in Fast Five. I actually love Tokyo Drift. I also I, I loved it, too. Was, I mean, I loved it, too. So basically, just to do a little bit of the fact pattern here, he enters into a settlement with Universal saying, I'm leaving the picture. I'm going to stay on as a producer. We don't know what he's going to get paid for what he's done so far or whatever. But he puts Universal in a pretty tough spot, right? Because they are not going to delay the movie. They're in the middle of production. So they're spending probably, I would guess, a million dollars a day just to keep the location, just to keep the talent there and not film, right? Because it's like, it's very expensive to have. Basically, when you're making a movie like that, it's kind of like air traffic control. You have to have your locations lined up on schedule. You have to have your crew there. You have to have your hotels, your equipment, your actors, because they all have other projects that they're doing when you're done shooting, right? So they're going to go off to various parts of the world and do their other things. And you can't tie down these really expensive locations indefinitely. So yeah, you have your sound stages, but any location work you're doing... To pause something is a very expensive proposition, put it that way. It's the overhead, right? It's just the overhead that you're paying for? It's that and talent, right? Because you have to pay them whether you shoot with them or not, right? I mean, you can put someone on hold and you can, before you start shooting, maybe you can delay things a couple weeks, right? That's a contractual thing. But once you've flown everyone in and you're actually shooting to then lose a director. I mean, yeah, you can have insurance for that, but it's a very significant expense. And there's schedules too, right? Because it's not like these people can like, they have other projects that are happening too. Like they've got other movies that they're booked on. Yeah, for sure. So when you deal with stars on that level, like Charlize Theron, Brie Larson, Jason Momoa, Vin Diesel, they're lining up. So they know how long production is going to be. Maybe it's six to 18 weeks or whatever it is. And maybe they're only doing a cameo. But every one of their days is going to be spoken for pretty much. And so as soon as this is done, they're on to their next thing. So there's uh, domino effects to any sort of scheduling change on a film like this. And there's cost to that. So anyway, all this is to say this is not a decision that Universal would allow lightly. And it's not a decision that Justin Lin would make lightly. 
But apparently, and this is all just being reported, so Vin Diesel, please don't sue us. Apparently, he just could not take working with Vin Diesel anymore. I mean, there's some other factors. He wrote the script, and he thought the script was locked. And then I guess the studio had some last-minute creative changes. They had to cut Eastern European scene because of the war in Ukraine. They also hired a production writer to polish up some of his dialogue on set, which is not uncommon. I mean, that's a lot of times, you know, with a franchise like this, the studio is going to want someone like, I mean, directing is a major responsibility and it's like kind of an all-encompassing thing. So he probably is too busy to also then work on the script like late at night, like you finish shooting and you get to your hotel room and then you work on the script at like three in the morning. Like that's probably not. So they wanted to have someone else, another set of eyes on set. Let's take a look at how the scenes are evolving, the dialogue and see if we need to adjust anything. So they had another writer on set and I think he wasn't thrilled with that. But from what I heard or what what's being sort of reported, there was an argument with Vin Diesel like a day or two into production and Vin Diesel was offering notes on some of the scenes and I guess a door got slammed and Justin Lin said, this is not worth my mental health. I'm out. Like, mic drop. I can't I can't do this. And he had done five installments of the franchise. So he's worked with Vin Diesel in the past. So you wonder how bad could it have been? Dude, I mean, look, we've been following this franchise for a while now. Obviously, it's not the first time that people have had an issue with Vin Diesel. Based on what we've read, I mean, you had Tyrese had issues with him. And then obviously, the you had the big issue between The Rock and what they're saying is that in the last movie, John Cena was replacing The Rock's character. The Rock has his spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw. I won't comment on how I felt about that movie, but let's just say it. I'm probably not going to watch the sequel. And I am a Rock fan. But Oh, Vanessa Kirby all day. I'm a fan. <laughs> you know, the issue seems to be like this guy. I mean, look, if you think about this movie where the first one, Vin Diesel's character was badass, tough guy, good driver. Now suddenly Vin Diesel is like Jason Bourne, never loses a fight, can break concrete with his foot. I mean, I don't even know what these movies have become or Vin Diesel's become in this movie, but it seems like Vin Diesel will write himself as like, I am a superhero, just make me look good. I'm not losing any fights. If you have a problem with that, see ya. So my, as I said, this is all publicly reported. Vin Diesel apparently shows up out of shape has veto rights over every action scene, doesn't know his lines because he doesn't want to say anything he doesn't want to say. So apparently it's like you have to every single day be like, hey, do you want to shoot this this way? And he'll say yes or no. And if he says no, then you have to scramble and come up with it. And uh, he has the creative ability to sort of dictate every single aspect of the film so how do you direct something like that? And I think that was probably Justin's point. And But the thing is, how did they not know that going into pre-production? Like, it's been five movies. Yeah. And I've heard, and that's a chemistry thing, because I heard on the set of Iron Man 1, there was a lot of that between John Favreau and RDJ. Like, John Favreau, oh, really? they would kind of improvise scenes and say, hey, do you want to do it this way, right? And, and it just worked. I mean, it all kind of came together. Because it's a creative process. So you want to be somewhat fluid. You don't want to be too rigid. But at the same time, right. you put a lot of time and effort into writing a script, telling a story, thinking about how the different characters interrelate and what the story, you know, what the arc of that story is and the conflict. And 
maybe you're just shooting a bunch of action scenes for five months and you just cut them together and then have Vin Diesel <laughs> look like a badass. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's all these movies are, but the <laughs> fact that he just shows up and is like, nah, I don't want to do that. No, no, that sounds like a cool scene, but I'm not, I'm not shooting. Like, listen, every workplace has creative difference, has differences, sure. right? Like, I mean, there's times where people and their coworkers get heated. You don't always see eye to eye and those things are sort of common and you just get that that's part of working in a high pressure environment where people are very passionate about what they do. And, you know, not everyone sees eye to eye on every issue. So we get that. But I think Justin Lin, he said my method, like this was driving him insane. Yeah, it's funny. I've been randomly rewatching Entourage and now I'm now talking about the stuff that we talk about in the show. Like I notice it in the show themselves, like the time where the director and the actor don't get along and they have to go to the studio. The studio has to step in. I'm sure it's pretty common. I think in this case, it's like, look, I mean, Vin Diesel's made a shit ton of money off this franchise. He doesn't have to do much but show up and look like a badass. And then his other acting role is that he is the voice of a tree. I am Groot. In the MCU, where all he has to do is say the same thing. I mean, maybe he's just used to being like, oh, I don't have to do much and I get paid a lot and this franchise is still going. And look, what is crazy to me is that they kind of lost me in 5'8". Like, I couldn't tell you what 5'9 was about. But the fact that all these big stars. Keep, oh, Fast fast 9? Yeah, Fast 9. I don't, that was the one that John Cena came into. And I forget like the differences between them now. Because Fast 5, again, is my favorite. It's interesting now because now you're having these other big actors jump on board these projects. It's not like they're a bunch of B-lists. Like, there's more and more A-listers that get added onto this project. And I've got to imagine like they don't want to deal with this shit either. Well, you know why, right? I mean, if you're an A-list actor and you're getting box office bonuses, then you want to be in movies that have a high floor, right? And so if you're in the 10th installment of a franchise, it could be a mediocre movie, but just because of this built-in fan base, you know it's going to do well. So it's like actors typically, you know, they take the creative projects that they really want to make, whether or not it's going to be a huge payday, and then sort of in between... You take a movie that's more like a sure thing, right? Where you know a lot of people are going to see it. Your back end's probably going to hit if you have one. And a budget's big. There's going to be a ton of marketing behind it. So it just brings you back into the sort of like public conversation, even if it's not creatively a, a phenomenal movie. And I think a lot of them can be. You just don't know. So it's like, okay, yeah, I'll hitch my star to this franchise. And maybe it's just a cameo where you're only there for two or three weeks and you get a solid payday out of it. And so I get that. I get why when you have the gravity of a major franchise, you can attract star talent for roles that maybe would otherwise have to go to smaller time actors because of the size of the franchise. But I think the other thing you hit on here is like, yes, this is Vin Diesel's franchise, but... Justin Lin had directed five of these movies, right? It's not like I he know. had no role in this franchise no. either. And so someone at Universal presumably has to be the arbiter of these creative differences. Like someone has to be able to say to Vin, no, like this is in the script. Like you can provide reasonable notes, but we can't. Or, or not, right? It's either Vin Diesel's movie. And if you don't want to do what he wants to do every single day, then you're not involved in the picture. Or you're like, hey, this guy wrote the script, he's directed five of these movies, he has to have some ability to direct this film and determine you know, what we're shooting and what the schedule is and where you're gonna stand. So I mean, it's a very challenging thing, but I think if he ultimately, Justin that is, felt like he had no support from the studio, then it's not a really tenable situation. And then the other thing I wanna discuss about this is how hard it is to find a replacement. And I think they actually, right. 
did a really good job because it's a huge film. So yeah, you have dollars to spend, but you have no time. There's no pre-production. You have no ability to change the cast. And you have to also not be working when they call you. Right, right, right. So it's like to have that, the list of people that have experienced directing tentpole pictures that can work with the talent and that aren't working currently is pretty slim. And I think the fact that they got Louis Leterrier, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, Leterrier. That sounds like it's the right, yeah. He directed, I think, the most underrated Marvel movie, which was the Ed Norton, Liv Tyler Hulk. And he also directed the first two Transporter films. So, I mean, he's, he's got the chops, in my view. Both? Uh, yeah, yeah. Action movies. Yeah. Action movies. And I, I think it, to a degree, it's like, hey, just stay out of Vin's way. You know, like, do, let Vin do what he wants to do. And it's going to be what it is. Uh, funny that you mentioned The Incredible Hulk, because I secretly also feel that way. I just don't say it openly. But I really liked that. I really liked the Incredible Hulk. I thought it was great. Edward Norton's Incredible Hulk was a fun movie. So I would. I like that director. I think he could do a good job. I like it too. Listen, I mean that's a topic for another day. I think you know there were creative differences with Ed, and they ended up going with Mark Ruffalo for Avengers, and no one's looking back. But yes, I do like that movie. I think it was underrated. One last question I have before we wrap up here. If Justin Lin's a producer on a movie and he's not directing anymore, he can still be a producer, right? Does that mean he invested money in the movie or like he's helped put the project together? Do you get like, you know, how to, does that change anything? Do you know anything about that stuff? I know a lot about it. I mean, so the producer title is not, think of it as like the Swiss army knife of titles on a film, right? It doesn't actually have a set meaning the way director or even a writer. I mean, there's various levels of writer. You could have someone that just writes a polish or someone that writes the script, and, and that's sort of dictated by the WGA. But, and it also depends whether it's film or TV. But producer can be, like, as you said, someone that was an investor, an early stage investor, someone that renders significant creative services, someone that renders significant production services, someone that is a friend of the film and sort of gets a producer credit someone that was significantly involved in a lot of different ways, but it's not a specifically defined title. So a studio can basically credit someone as a producer for at their discretion. And in a lot of cases, for example, if you're looking at an indie, you know, when you're packaging films, you'll say, you know, this is a, let's say this is a $10 million budget picture. Whoever brings in 5 million will be able to dictate two EP titles, right? Or something like that. So you can kind of, purchase those titles on the more financial side of things. And if you're Justin Lin, you know, there's probably some emergency meeting at Universal. Justin's like, I can't continue on this project. And they say, okay, well, we either, like, this is a negotiated thing. He may not be involved actually in any meaningful way going forward. He might just be, I'm, I'm over it. They might invite him to the premiere and maybe do some press and stuff like that. But he, we just don't know. He could he yeah. could be like yeah no this is my baby and I just don't want to work with Finn but you know send me dailies I'm willing to take a look and give you my creative edits and try to maybe I'm willing to help the next director sort of with continuity and this and that like we just you know it's it's a very ambiguous title that could mean a lot or it could mean a little but odds I think this is also a little bit of um, saving face because you know to walk away from directing is all in, right? You're basically the most involved person on the creative side, other than maybe like if there's a Kevin Feige, like overall creative producer that, you know, calls all the shots. 
So to go from that to not being involved is dramatic. So they're probably like, oh, yeah, we'll keep you on as a producer. Right. You did get us through pre-production, did two days of shooting. Maybe you'll keep 5% of your payday. I don't know. But this is all negotiated. Yeah, because if you're a studio now, you're like, ooh, we got to take the risk that, you know, a Justin Lin has walked away before in the last minute. Probably doesn't bode well for the studio, you know, but obviously I'm sure they had their conversations and he had the right reasons to go do it. But interesting story to follow. I mean, the movie doesn't come out till or it's scheduled for a summer uh, 2023 release. So next May, next May. Yeah, next May. So we've got a, they got a year to make this happen. So we'll we'll keep up and, and see how it goes. Justin, if you want to if you're listening to the show, come on, do an interview. We'd love to hear you. We'd love to hear your side of things. That would be amazing. That would actually would be amazing. So, well, Paul, thanks again for the breakdowns. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And we'll be back next week. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera, Marco Seiler Gonzalez, with assistant producer Justin Sanchez and assistant research producer Haas Nasser. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>